let's dig into the Word tonight, Romans chapter 10. And again, to remind you that all of chapter 9, all of chapter 10, and all of chapter 11 are very specifically written to, for, and about the nation Israel. They are very specific in the way they're worded. It's very clear from the context. But there are some things within them that certainly apply in a general sense, in a typical way, to all people. And that is very true with the passage before us tonight as we finish chapter 10. We'll move on to chapter 11 next week. Tonight's message, the remedy or rejection. You see, you can have either of those two things. God in his wonderful grace, his incredible mercy, the vehicle of faith, has put forth the good news of the gospel, which is the remedy to man's sin problem, to that which ails us as human beings. That's the remedy, but God forces no one to receive that remedy. He offers that remedy universally to all of mankind. But he does not sovereignly act to say every last person has to receive it. So we see tonight the picture of the nation Israel and perhaps the greatest example of those two things laid side by side. Either the remedy of grace or the rejection of God's remedy. Would you pray with me tonight? Father, thank you for this time. Pray that you would speak into our lives the powerful truths that will be contained here, Lord, as we get to verse 17. For faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Lord, we submit this time to unite help tonight to help us hear. Lord, would your word speak powerfully to us. We ask all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 11, Romans chapter 10. For the scripture says... And I want you to just hover for a moment. Paul is going to let loose an absolute barrage, a full broadside, uh, a, a military volley, if you will, of Old Testament scriptures here in this passage. And as I've shared with you before, his favorite book is the book of Isaiah. He'll quote from that several times. He's going to quote from Deuteronomy and Joel. He is going to lay waste to any thought or any concept that there was one way of salvation in the Old Testament and another way of salvation in the New. There has been always one way to be right by God. He's already said it in chapter 1. The just shall live by faith. You, you can't be saved any other way than by faith. Whether you are Abraham or Isaac, or Jacob, or Jeff Gill. If you have come to a right relationship with God, you have done so by faith. And so he's going to use the Old Testament as a tool to speak to his own people. For the scripture says, quoting first from Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is over all and is rich to all who call upon him. Notice there's not one mention of anything one must do there. There's no requirement. There's no mention of any of the feast days. There's no focus on the law itself. 
It's simply, if you respond to the call, you'll be saved. Believe in him, and you will not be put to shame. Speaking of everlasting shame, by the way, because that's what the prophet Isaiah is speaking of in that chapter, there in chapter 28. In verse 13, he goes on, and now he's going to quote from Joel, from chapter 2, verse 32 there. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's a statement. He's just going to go on and give one testimony after another of of the power of faith, believing God's amazing gospel that has always called out to mankind. If you look very closely and very carefully, even in the Garden of Eden, you, you see the scarlet thread of redemption revealed. Because Adam and Eve are busy justifying their sin, in essence lying about it, blaming each other, and what does God do? He slaughters an innocent animal and covers them in spite of what they're saying, and in spite of what they're doing, he issues them grace. In verse 14 he goes on, How shall they call on him whom they have not believed? You see, if you're not presenting the real gospel, it's tough to call on the Jesus of the gospel. It's not going to happen. How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they're sent? He uses a linear piece of reasoning that absolutely leads you to a single conclusion. If the gospel is preached, it's the only way for anyone to believe, and unless it's preached, people can't believe. It's the reason that we're busy about our Father's business, preaching the gospel. It's the reason that we're not as concerned with social things as we are spiritual things. Amen? And notice I said as. It's not that we're not concerned about social things. But the goal of the church is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ so that men can be saved. We have to do that. That's what we're about. It's the whole reason that we have a team in New York right now. It's the reason there are kids at the youth camp. It's the reason that Creation Fest is going on. It's the reason that we have bases in El Salvador. It's the reason we're doing the work in Colombia. It's the reason we're in Peru. It's the reason we're in the Philippines. It's the reason we're in Mexico. We are preaching the gospel. Because unless you preach the gospel, people won't hear the gospel. If they don't hear it, it is very likely that they will not be saved. Now notice I said very likely. Because God can make the rocks and trees cry out the gospel. God can actually, Romans chapter 1 says, make the creation speak in such a way that we're without excuse. So God can get the message out, but the primary way he gets the message out is by preaching the gospel, amen? It's a whole lot simpler than sitting around, I don't know why you didn't get saved. (laughs) You ever think about that? Because sure, the pews you're sitting in could cry out the gospel. But the fact of the matter is, that takes a miracle instead of your mouth. So we're supposed to use our mouths. We're supposed to use our lives. We're supposed to preach the gospel. As it is written, and I love this, and it's often used to, you know, it's probably on half of the mission organizations in the world 
This is their theme verse. It's from Isaiah 52, which, by the way, is a messianic passage. It's speaking of the the king himself. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. How beautiful is that? And And it's not that pastors don't have stinky feet. It's that everyone's feet who goes with the gospel are beautiful to God. No matter what they look like, no matter what size they are, what color they are, whether they smell or don't smell, how beautiful are the feet of those who will take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. It's a missionary call. It's to speak into our lives tonight. How beautiful are those feet of our team right now at the youth camp? Because they're preaching the gospel. How beautiful are the feet of that team in New York because they're preaching the gospel? How beautiful is the group whose feet are in Cornwall preaching the gospel, who will also go to Scotland? Some of them will go to Ireland. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? They're really beautiful to God because they are literally the feet of Jesus. I got, a, I got a letter a couple of years ago from a guy, well, you know, you're just, you're, you're making an, an equivocation that's not in Scripture. Really? I believe Jesus actually said when he left, we are the light of the world now. That's what he said. That's not my opinion. Those are the words of Jesus. So if we are taking his place, because he's no longer here, he's in heaven, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. It's a beautiful picture of what we're supposed to be doing with our time while we're still on this earth. And then he goes on to say something that ought to cause all of us to stop and take pause. It absolutely lays waste to the thought of universal salvation. You see, the message, the call is universal. It goes to everyone. But not everyone believes. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. That's a very plain statement Paul makes there. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? That's a question, by the way. It's phrased so in the original Hebrew. Who's believed the report? So then faith comes by hearing. And hearing By the word of God. And so first the remedy. God's amazing remedy. You you see because the remedy is offered. The only question is the rejection. When God breathed into mankind. And I want to really strongly encourage you. We are in both the books of beginnings now. We're going to start John's gospel on Sunday. We're in the book of Genesis on Sunday nights. Please be there. Because we are providing the backdrop for virtually all that Scripture contains thereafter. The Gospel of John, the book of Genesis are key to understanding the totality of the Bible. And so I want to encourage you to be there. But really what this is saying is, look, the the Gospel as it's being preached has always been man's way of salvation. The only question is, when God in Genesis chapter 1 breathes life into man... He breathes eternity into mankind. 
He doesn't just breathe life like as in a biologic organism that now has blood coursing through it through its veins. He actually breathes eternal life into man. Why is that important? Because 100% of all humankind will live eternally. The only question is, where is that eternity going to be spent? You see, people don't like to think of that. They like to think, well, maybe some people are just annihilated. They take their last breath and they cease to exist. That's not what your Bible declares very plainly. Your Bible declares that 100% of all humankind have been made in the image of God and are therefore eternal in nature. So you're going to live somewhere eternally. The gospel is the answer. It's the remedy to where you will be if you don't make the choice. Because if you make no choice, you've actually made the choice to live apart from God eternally. Crazy, isn't it? God's made it very clear. Don't make it unclear by thinking there's an option C or an option D or an in-between place or some other kind of thing that you can do to maybe eventually get there as many cults do. Well, you know, maybe somebody can pray you out of there. Mm-mm, ain't happening. Know how we know that? Luke 16. The picture there is not good. Send Lazarus over here. You already had the prophets. You didn't believe them. What's this passage about? Those very same prophets spoke to the Jewish people the message of the cross of Christ, and they didn't believe. You see, God's provided that remedy. But it's amazing to me how many people can be grace haters. We love religion. We love works. We love doing something to have a right relationship with God. But man, when it comes to grace, the Jewish people were grace haters. They loved the law, they loved the works. They loved the feast days so much so that they began to worship those things instead of the God who made them. And when grace came around, they began to hate grace. Why? Because it says there's no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. They're saying, what you mean? We have the law? We have the temple? We have the feast days? We've been keeping these things for centuries, by now a millennia and a half, and we're not okay with God? You see, because that's what the Bible says. By the works of the law, we've already seen it, is zero, none, nada, no flesh justified before God. The law can't do it. The flesh can't do it. Works can't do it. Church can't do it. Religion can't do it. You realize you could memorize the entire Bible word for word in the original language and still perish and go to hell? Because it's not about memorizing your Bible. It's about knowing the King of Kings and Lord of Lords personally.
we need to make sure that we're telling people the truth about the gospel. Because some people associate church with salvation. And while salvation can happen here, this church doesn't save anybody. I don't save anybody. When you share the gospel, you don't save anybody. Jesus Christ alone by grace and through faith is the only one who could ever save. And so it's the gospel that saves. We need to make sure that's the message that we preach. Because sometimes we start to do exactly what the Jewish people did. We become grace haters and church lovers. We preach a ministry style. We preach a style of corporate worship. We, we preach, maybe you would call it a denomination. We've got to be careful to preach the gospel. Otherwise, you know what's hap- what happens to you? You turn into a Jonah. The story of Jonah, to me, the most amazing thing about it is actually found in the fourth chapter. You know, we all love the, you know, well, he got swallowed up by a whale. He spent three days and nights, and it's used in the New Testament as an example. No sign will be given unto you except the sign of Jonah. So we all associate it with the birth, the death, the burial, and the resurrection, the three days in the grave of Jesus. Great analogy, by the way. Great picture, by the way. But Jonah was perhaps the world's best-defined grace-hater. He was actually so afraid of the power of the grace of God that that's why he went to Tarshish. And we know that because he says so in his prayer in chapter 4. Why? He goes one time, preaches the gospel, and they're all getting saved. So you would think he'd be going, Yay, God! This is awesome! The Ninevites are getting saved. One of the capital cities of the the Assyrians is having a revival. You would have thought he would have, you know, made a badge. I was there when the Assyrians got saved. But that isn't what happened, is it? Jonah chapter 4, verse 1 Because of the repentance of the Ninevites from the king to the lowest servant, it greatly displeased Jonah. And he became angry. And I want you to hear, you want to talk about someone who hated God's grace? And he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, Was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? And therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God and slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. That, friends, is a grace hater to the max. That's someone who actually even knows that the grace of God will do what the grace of God will do. And he says, I'm so sure of it that I don't want my enemy saved. Oh, in Jesus' name, don't be a grace hater. You see, the Jewish people 
many of them held that same view about everyone who wasn't a Jew. If you weren't Jewish, if you weren't religious, if you didn't keep the law, if you weren't of the Pharisees, oh, man, don't preach that grace thing. They'll probably get saved. You see, they were seeing the power of God unto salvation to them who believe. And they hated it. Family, I want to say something to you. And maybe it's going to sting some of you. You need to love God's grace whenever it happens, including to people that you don't like. Because I know a lot of people that have quit praying for people because they think they're beyond the touch of the grace of God. If ever there was a group of people that was beyond the touch of God, it was the Ninevites. Please don't do that. That person that's hurt you, that spouse that's left you, that child that's disappointed you, that job that's failed you, you need to pray grace upon them like a river. Because that's what God wants. That's what God wants. And so what happened to the Jewish people is they began to run from grace. Despite all of his blessings, his unbelievable mercy, everything that he had repeatedly done and said, the fact that they even existed on the face of the earth was miraculous. Yet they hated the one thing that God repeatedly showed them. Hosea is a perfect example of that, isn't he? If you know the story of Hosea, uh, Hosea, um, I want you to go marry a prostitute. He's like, say what? <laughs> it ain't happening. You got the wrong guy. What a picture of God's grace. And oh, by the way, I want you to adopt the kids that she has with the other men. Oh my goodness. Isn't that a beautiful picture of God's grace? Aren't we all the adopted children of some kind of prostitution to this world? Think about it. Think about what I just said. And I'm not trying to be sexual in what I just said. Think about your own life. Is your life perfect? You come from a, anybody in here come from a perfect family? good, because I'd be jealous and I'd probably grace hate on you. <laughs> we all have come from a mess, haven't we? There, there's not a person, per, perfect person in this room. And so we should all love grace. We should be running to grace, not from grace. It should be so exciting. When we hear the word grace, we go, sign me up. But if you start to become a legalist, a religionist, pretty soon your way is the only way, and then it becomes your way or the highway. And that's what happened. And they began to run away. They didn't want the Jewish. 
They, they wanted only the Jewish people to be saved. They didn't want anybody else to be saved. They wanted a little club. Man, church should be one divine mess. You understand what I'm saying? Church should be a divine mess. It should be filled with people who are broken and beat up and disjointed and discombobulated. And I'm not saying you stay that way, but the fact of the matter is we ain't the prettiest bunch, are we? We should be running to grace, not from grace. Exists even today, modern state of Israel. When you travel there, and I'll encourage you, we're going to make some announcements here very shortly about our 2018 trip. It'll be in May. Encourage you to go, but one of the things that will strike you is the amount of religion that still exists, especially in the ultra-Orthodox. And they hate grace. Matter of fact, it is basically, uh, it's just shy of a crime And if you're trying to convert openly orthodox, it is a crime to Christianity. They hate grace. They don't hate religion. They hate grace. But that grace calls out universally. Just keeps on crying out. That scope, he's just saying, look, quotes from Joel... Quotes from Joel. He's not quoting from Paul. He's quoting from Joel. He's not quoting from Peter. He's quoting from Joel. He's not quoting from John. He's quoting from the Old Testament prophet Joel. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that book is almost exclusively about the nation Israel. It speaks of the tribulation. It speaks of the reason for the tribulation there in chapters 2 and 3. To call upon the name of the Lord Jesus is a very, very specific word. When you're, when you're talking about that Jesus, you're talking about the only begotten Son. You're talking the one and only true King. You're talking the Lion, the Lamb, the Great I Am. The Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Sovereign God of the Heavens. The Majestic One. The one who is wonderful and a counselor. The one upon whose shoulders the government of his, his kingdom, there will be no end of it. To call upon the name of the Lord. Family, we need to make sure we present the right Jesus to people. This whole thing of just waving Jesus at somebody. You need to tell them who the real Jesus is. Don't give them a false sense that Jesus is just a name. No, Jesus is God's own son. And he died on Calvary's cross. He's a sinless lamb. Is all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. With the emphasis on the Lordship. The Hebrew wording here in the Old Testament in, in Joel, the Greek in the New Testament is very, very specific. It's genuinely calling out the Lordship of Jesus. Lord, in its easiest English definition, means master. It means he now drives your ship. He's the commanding officer. He's on the bridge. He's the one who sets the course. He's the one who plots it. 
He's the one who issues the orders. He is the one who makes sure that you get where you need to go and are doing what you need to do. He is the commander of the vessel of your life. We call upon the name of the Lord. And to do so is to be saved. Not to be religious. It's not to join something. It's to be something. It's to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the universal call. That's why he says, whosoever, whoever. I love that. Whoever. You know what it means? Whoever. <laughs> it literally means anyone who will. It's beautiful. It doesn't say anyone but. And then a whole list of people that maybe you don't like. Or people whom you don't think they meet the criteria. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that term call means to dedicate oneself to a proposition. In other words, something's been offered. You respond to the offer and the focus of the author of the author offer is none other than the lord so it's very specific what's being said here though it is as simple as asking jesus christ into your life and meaning it but it's the one and the only you see throughout the bible grace is the message i kind of had a string of what I like to call those types of emails this week. Oh, this grace thing. What about the law, brother? Well, what about the law? Are you talking about the moral standard? Still stands. But how we relate to it? You better hope it's by grace or you're a dead man. Because the mere fact you're asking the question, the way that you're asking it, is sure sign that you have a problem with the grace of God. The grace of God is that beautiful. Grace is the message. Don't forget the grace in the message. That's why he asked this kind of line of rhetorical reasoning. Inherent, really, in, in the eternal plan of salvation. It is just simple obedience by faith. Abraham didn't do much right, did he? He was a mess. But he did believe. Rahab believed. Isaac believed. I simply believed. Whoever, whosoever, whomever, calls, believes, will be saved. Please keep it simple. But I want you to see that there are two sides to that. Because God makes the call, but you've got to respond. Now, most of you probably have smartphones tonight, I would imagine, or some type of electronic communication device. Amen? Aren't you so thankful for that ignore button? 
Because if you're like me, I've gotten into this whole thing of trying to put a face on there, and you know, if I got a picture in my library, I can I can tell who that is. Or if you're using Outlook, you know, you go through there and it automatically shows the name of the person, the ID, and, and it tells you a little bit about them. Can we be honest? There's sometimes the moment we see that name come up, what do we do? (laughs) Voicemail. You see, in order for the call to be received, you got to receive it. Otherwise, it's just a call. God's been dialing you since you were born. He's been placing a call, and he's waiting for you to hit the green one instead of the red one. He's waiting for you to hit send instead of end. You you see, that's the choice. They're both essential. If God doesn't call you up, you ain't answering. But if he does call you up, you have to answer. And in the very simplest of terms, that is the role of God's sovereign plan and man's responsibility to answer the call. You see, grace is the message. The call is it. But that grace brings a wonderful thing. You see, inherent in God's plan, inherent in in the in the good news that are being preached by our feet, inherent in, in what we call the Great Commission. The Great Commission is for us to go, amen? We go with the phone call. It's for you. <laughs> I love that. Looks like it's God. That's really the deal. It's a beautiful thing. If you've ever had your phone crash and someone else has got one on them and you're waiting for it and they, they hand you, it's like, here, it's for you. It's evangelism in a nutshell. It's to take someone a vehicle whereby they can receive the call from God so they can respond. But when they do that, it brings something into their life that they didn't previously have. Responding to that call brings lordship. And in the context, as Jesus rightly said in Matthew chapter 6, his own words speaking about mastery, speaking about lordship, he said, no one can serve two lords, two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll hold to the one, despise the other. You cannot serve. And in this case, he uses the example of God and possessions or money, mammon. He said, at the end of the day, the grace of God brings lordship into your life. The call of God to the Jewish people was to bring lordship into their life. The call of God of all his call to all of mankind throughout all time is to bring lordship into our life, not just saviorhood. Do you understand what I said? You see, because Jesus is our savior, 
But almost more importantly, he's our Lord. He's the master. He now is the one that tells us how to live our lives. And our lives, as best as we possibly can, are supposed to meet those criteria. When we know what God's Word says, we're supposed to have that as our new directive. In other words, you can't have part of Christ. People often use the the phrase, fire insurance. Why is that? Because they they think they can mutter the name Jesus and simply have a Savior. You see, if you don't have Jesus as Savior and Lord, perhaps you don't have him as Savior or Lord. Or as I've shared with you previously, if Jesus is not Lord of all, then perhaps he is not Lord at all. From D.L. Moody. You see, what's in view is there's no such thing as partial fatherhood. You can't be most of the way adopted. You, You can't be partially into the family of God. Christ does not exist in parts. He cannot be pulled apart. He can't not be accepted. You you can't accept him in parts. You see, because the Jewish people didn't want anything to do with Messiah, they couldn't have any part of him. That's exactly why Jesus said, you are either for me or against me. That's what he said. So he's either Savior and Lord, or he's perhaps not Savior or Lord. Some somber thinking, isn't it? I don't mean to mess you guys up. I just simply want you to see that the gospel is also serious. It's joyous to be sure. Hallelujah. Amen? I was blind, but now I see. I know that. I'm with John Newton on that one. I was a wretch. And I've been set free. But because I've been set free, then what we'll see in John 3 applies to to me, Jeff. He who does not believe has been judged already, Jesus is going to say. You see, if I've been judged and found guilty and someone offers me a pardon, I probably want to be fully grateful for that and not just snatch the pardon and run. You see, salvation doesn't come by intuition or a mystical experience or meditation or speculation or philosophizing. It doesn't come by any other means than believing on the only begotten Son of God. And when I do that, the craziest thing happens. That faith starts to change me. Starts to mold and shape my character. That glad tidings of the gospel starts to produce in me things that were not there previously. A love for the things of God, His Word, a love for prayer, a love for God Himself, a love for people. It produces in me something I can say, that's the Lordship working in me. That's Jesus running my life. 
because I used to run it before he got a hold of me. We all know what that looked like, amen? You remember your B.C. days, your before Christ times? Anything change? A few things changed in my life. I'm sure they did in yours too. That's lordship at work. Let him complete that good work that he has begun in you even unto the day of Christ Jesus. That's the lordship at work. Jesus, family, Jesus is not an add-on. He's the whole enchilada. He's supposed to be our all in all. He's not supposed to be, well, I got, you know, I got this little smidgen of Jesus and I kind of smeared it on the outside of my leg. And because I got a little Jesus on me, I'm saved. No, you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Behold, the old things are passing away and I'm becoming completely new. That's not an add on, that's a you've been reborn. Amen? That's why Jesus said a man must be born again. He didn't say you kind of need a little smear. Now you need a whole new nature. And that whole new nature brings about the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. You see, there's only one gospel. That's why Paul wrote to the church at Galatia. And really the church at Galatia is kind of a picture of what happens when you begin to kind of spin back towards the law, because the the problem with the church at Galatia was they were kind of like, well, let's add Jesus to the law. We'll just dab a little Jesus on everything we used to do, and if we put enough Jesus on it, it's kind of like if you if you use sriracha, you can make any kind of food taste good, right? Why is that? Because it kills your taste buds. So people think if you take a little bit of Jesus and you squirt it on something bad, that it all of a sudden becomes good. Mm-mm, doesn't work that way. You've got to get rid of the old. You've got to put off the old, as Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, and put on the new. That's lordship. That's I don't like what I had, and I'm not going to coat it with hot sauce. I'm actually going to get rid of it and cook a new meal. There's only one gospel, and there's only one Christ who is Lord. And so Paul in Galatians 1 and verse 6 says this, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you to grace in Christ. To a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you other than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. For as we have said before, and so I now say to you again, if anyone preaches another gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Why is that? Because the gospel of grace is the only way that anyone can be saved. It's not by religion. It's not by Jesus plus a bunch of other things. It is in Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, through the Word of God alone, by the Spirit of God alone. That's it. And when you do that, it's going to change your life. You see, that's really what was behind what Paul was saying in Romans chapter 1. That's why he said what he said. 
There in verse 18, he says, look, those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. See, you can know a whole bunch of things, enough about God to actually believe in him by simply looking at the creation. So the gospel goes out, the call goes out, people's minds are naturally attuned to spiritual things. Let's preach Jesus to them. Let's preach Jesus to them. I had a, Connie and I were, were over at uh, Parker's Lighthouse in Long Beach. Last Saturday night, we were having some dinner with her brother and family, basically. We're sitting there, and we came out, and this young man walked up to me, and he wanted to know if we would support his ministry. And I said, well, what ministry is that? Just so you know, I like these kind of things. <laughs> oh, we're a church. What church is that? And I look on there, and it's as if they took every cult known to man and put some quotation from them on this sheet of paper. And it was like, here's Louis Farrakhan, and then here's what Allah says, and here's what Buddha... It literally had all of these things on one page. And down at the bottom, it had John 14. And I looked at him. I said, have you ever read your Bible? He looked at me and he said, yeah. I said, you're familiar with that chapter? Because I said, I can tell you what you can do with this whole piece of paper. Throw the whole thing away except for that one line because that's the real Jesus. Jesus said in that chapter, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but by me. And he was like, And then he thanked me. He said, I didn't know. I didn't know. He'd been lied to. Preach the gospel. You don't have to stand on a street corner and prepare a message. You look for ways for your feet to go tell somebody the good news. That's all. It it can be in a fly shop in Mammoth. One of my favorite places. (laughs) It can be on a street corner or in a restaurant. It could be in Israel. It could be right out here as you're leaving the parking lot. Maybe somebody's walking through. Don't miss the opportunity to tell them that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because here's the results of rejecting that grace. Paul finishes up this passage with some very simple things. Because from above, the gospel is to go into all the world. God's crying out. From beneath, there in Luke 16, even those that are already passed into the next life are saying, send us Jesus. The the Macedonian call that we looked at, if you studied with us in the book of Acts in chapter 16, the Macedonian call was, come over to us. Paul would even say, we are constrained. There's a a cry within us to preach the gospel. So we need to do that because the results of rejecting it are the same for everybody. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. 
for their sound has gone out to all the earth. Quoting from the 19th Psalm. And their words to the end of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? Moses first says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. Can you imagine when they thought of that verse, which comes from Deuteronomy chapter 32, part of the Pentateuch, part of the first five books, the books of Moses, the books of books. And then they thought about what happened with Jonah. I will provoke you to jealousy right where we started. Jonah was actually jealous. He said, we've been keeping the law, and we're far from God, and I go preach this rotten gospel, and they get saved. You see, that was his mindset. I give them the simplicity of the gospel, and they actually get saved. And so what does God do? To ingrain this in everyone's heart, he gives the gospel to the Gentiles. Because the bottom line is, we were always just as guilty. Amen? But Isaiah, what he says is very bold when he says, I was found by those who did not seek me. Have you ever seen, you ever talked to somebody who had a radical conversion experience? There are many of us in this room, it's like, I was looking for God. God found me. I was mad in 1968 that I had to go to this stupid crusade. My parents made me, my stepmom made me go. I am kicking and screaming. I don't want to go. And I sit down, and Mel Dibble, just the name should mean that there's nothing he can say that's going to help me. preaches a simple gospel message, and I'm like, i got to get saved. I don't don't know all the nuts and bolts, but I know whatever he just said, I need that. Gave my life to Jesus. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. I'm hoping that young man down there walking along the harbor in Long Beach went home and read that verse and got on his knees and believed in the only begotten Son of God. You see, so the message goes out. God's going to get the message out because God's God. And the final thing that we'll pick up in chapter 11 and the beauty of all this, because the conclusion of all this, you can kind of look at it, man, God's just done with the, <laughs> forget the Jewish people. He's got to be done with I mean, if he's ever done with anybody, he's done with them. That is so not true. It's mind-boggling. But to Israel, he says, verse 21, All day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. you remember what Jesus said? He's standing on the Mount of Olives. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 23. It's there in verse 37. I would gather you unto myself, 
as a mother hen would gather her chicks, but you would not come. His arms were outstretched, saying, I want to gather you in, and they nailed those very arms to a cross. And yet, God's not willing that any should perish. And when we get to chapter 11, we're going to find out one day all Israel is going to be saved. That's because that's how big the grace of God is. That's how magnificent his love is for the lost. There is no place that you can go that his face, David was right, that his face cannot find you. If you were to descend into the depths of hell, it's me. Got grace for you. Heights of heaven. It's good to see you up here. You're a little early. Could you go back and, oh, by the way, here's grace. Man. God's patient with Israel. It's never going to wear out. He's going to fulfill every promise he's ever made. He has a future for the nation. And it's a really exciting one. Might be around the corner. So let's pray for God's grace. That everyone would see the remedy and never think about rejection. Amen. Father, we thank you tonight for your goodness. And we pray, Lord, that as we conclude our time together in your word, that your word will have transformed and changed, shaped and molded us into the beautiful image of Christ Jesus, our Savior. And Lord, I want to pray specifically tonight, if there's anyone here and they don't know you, Lord, they they heard the gospel message and they want to respond. Lord, that for them tonight, is that day of salvation that Scripture speaks of. Because indeed, tomorrow is promised to no man. And so, God, we submit that to you because you know the hearts of all. And want to pray, Lord, for those that tonight are maybe a little wayward. Lord, they they can't say for sure that, that you are their Lord. They think you're Savior, but they're not sure because they're not walking with you. God, would you strengthen feeble hands? Would you lift up the broken, the downcast? God, we love you. We thank you, Lord, for grace. Help us to walk in it. And we ask these things in the beautiful name, the one above all other names, the name of Jesus. Amen.